The Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God. And the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. One of the most popular biblical characters in most cultures, and, and for good reason. He, he had a miraculous birth. I mean, he had times of miraculous power and strength. He had a call. He was called and empowered to deliver God's people from the oppression of the dreaded Philistines. I mean, who couldn't get behind that? But unfortunately, generation after generation, we fall into a trap that we think that the story of Samson is truly about Samson. And it's not. The days of Samson are not here to glorify him. The story of Samson is to help us gain just another image of the deliverance of God. Amidst one of the greatest tragedies and disgraces within the book of Judges yet. If you missed last week, let me remind you of Samson. Samson is known for two things. Number one, he's known to be a man of power and strength. And that strength wasn't his own, it was given to him. And that strength was tied to his vow, and the Bible tells us that he was a Nazarite from birth. A Nazarite we went over last week. A Nazarite is someone who has been dedicated, set apart as an instrument of God. And a Nazarite, someone who makes that vow, someone who makes that promise, is committed to three things. Number one, no wine, no alcohol. In fact, God was so serious about that, no grapes, no raisins, no skins of grapes. I mean, nothing, nothing associated with the vine. Number two, commitment, you don't cut your hair. Number three, you stay away from dead bodies, people otherwise. And again, God was so serious about this. That during your vow of being a Nazarite, you couldn't even attend a funeral for your family members. This was such a powerful commitment. You had to miss your parents' funeral if you were a Nazarite. I mean, this was a serious vow. Because Samson was a Nazarite, he had times of incredible power given to him by God. But Samson was known for more than just a man of power. He was a man of great failure as well. Samson had immense strength in the presence of man, but great moral weakness when it came to women. He was disrespectful to God, 
treated his vow as a Nazarite with contempt and frivolity. He ate grapes. He likely drank alcohol. He ate honey out of a dead body and then made a joke about it. And then last week, as we finished part one of the days of Samson, we began to see a life of promise beginning to spiral out of control. And I'd like to say the days of Samson part two, we would see a change, but we don't. The days of Samson part two pick up that spiral and continue it until Samson crashes and burns. If you have your Bibles or you join me for the days of Samson part two, starting in the book of Judges chapter 15, while you're turning there, let me catch you up to where we left off last week. Last week, Samson talked his parents into allowing him to marry a Philistine woman, which again was against the rules. They had this great party where, where Samson made up a riddle. He made up a joke. He made up a game out of his sin and failure before God of eating honey out of that lion. He made that riddle, gave it to the party guests, they couldn't figure it out. And so they threatened his new wife. Because of their threats, the new wife gave them the answer to the riddle. Sansom threw a tantrum, went down to another Philistine town, killed 30 people, took their belongings, paid off his debt, and ran home to mom and dad. And we finished last week with this troubling verse. Judges chapter 14, verse 20, it says this. But Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. See, Samson ran home, threw his tantrum, ran home before the wedding was consummated, before the marriage was completed. And as a result, the young wife was given to someone else. We have this ominous feeling that that is not going to go well with our friend. That's where we pick up the story. Judges chapter 15, verse 1. Begins with a lot of big biblical buts. Verse 15, verse 1. But after a while, after Samson had a time to cool down, and I want you to know this isn't like a day. In the Hebrew, a while, we're talking a while. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it's been so long We've changed seasons. Samson throws a tantrum, kills 30 people, pays off his debts, runs home on his wedding night, leaving his wife. But after some time cooling down, enough time where we at least change seasons, Samson visits his wife with a young goat. You might think that's odd. That's equivalent in our day to a huge bouquet of roses. Right? Man, I would stick to the roses if I was you. <laughs> Samson decides after a season passes, he calms down. You know what? Gosh, I miss that girl. I'm going to go buy her a goat. <laughs> and I'm going to go into my wife in her room. It's time to consummate my marriage. I just want to hit pause for a moment and just think the arrogance of this guy. Fellas, you jilt your wife at the altar and you bring her a goat? That's not going to go well for you. 
And we know something's already happening because of how verse uh, chapter 14 ends. Samson doesn't. So he's going, he's skipping home to his wife with his young goat. I'm sorry, baby. I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have jilted you on the wedding night. He goes home. Look at the end of verse one. But there's another one, big biblical but. Her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought you hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Look at Samson's response, verse three. Samson then said to him, this time I'll be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Let's again, hit pause there for a minute. Samson says, okay, this time, meaning last time I might have overreacted. Last time when I threw a tantrum and killed 30 people, my bad. Yeah, last time probably wasn't right. I probably shouldn't have done that. But this time I'm going to be blameless. This time I'm morally correct. This time no one can question me. This time no one can come after me. This time makes complete sense when I do them harm. The term harm is quite clear means to cause misery, to bring a disaster, to inflict a mortal wound. First thing you get into is Samson's vengeance. This time, my tantrum makes sense. This time, it's right. And look at the creative way in which he does harm. Verse 4, Samson went and caught 300 foxes took torches and turned to foxes tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between the tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain along with the vineyards and groves. Now, a lot of people read this and they think, oh my gosh, that's horrible for the foxes. And yes, it is, but this is far worse. This is a mortal blow to the economy of that entire region. Think of this, Central California produces food for one quarter of the food for our entire nation. Central California, right up here. Produces one quarter of the food for our entire nation, produces 40% of the fruits and nuts that we consume as a country. Imagine if a terrorist burns down all the crops in Central California. What would that do to the economy? I mean, this was a huge, this is a huge deal, and you gotta know, they're gonna respond. Verse six, then the Philistines said, who did this? I mean, who would burn down an entire economy? People said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. I mean, you see this vengeance cycle? It continues, verse seven, Samson said to them, since you acted like this, I'll surely take revenge on you. But after that, I'm done. I'm gonna have the last word. I'll take vengeance on you for taking vengeance on me, for taking vengeance on you, for taking vengeance on me. But then we're gonna be done. Verse 8, he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. And he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock, Etam. 
ruthless and great slaughter. Those two terms describe a response that was unrestrained, heartless, and reckless. I mean, as we're reading the first eight verses of chapter 15, if you're like me, it's beginning to get harder and harder to figure out who's the people of God and who's the instrument of Satan. Man, who's for God? Who's against God? I mean, there's a cycle of vengeance. I mean, it's hard to determine. It's hard to discern. Wait, wait, wait. Who's the judge? And who are the people opposed to God? It is just covered with violence, covered with vengeance. Got me to think this week. I wonder as a Christian movement, how do we differentiate ourselves from the world? Ever think about that? We're good in a time of judges. It's just getting miserable. You can't determine the good guys from the bad guys anymore. How about now? How's the movement of Christ doing today? at differentiating ourselves from the world. Are we known more for vengeance or forgiveness? Is a Christian movement around the world known for compassion on the weak or oppression of the weak? Are we driven to respond to the world's wrongs with wrongs of our own or are we committed to reflect the glory of God in the midst of a dark and kooky culture? So I think if we're not careful, sometimes people of God end up acting like the people who are opposed to God. The story continues, the cycle of vengeance continues, verse 9. As a result of his ruthless and great slaughter, his reckless and heartless actions. Verse 9, then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we, we have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. I mean, the cycle of vengeance continues. So people of the Philistines go up to a tribe, the tribe of Judah, one of the tribes of the people of Israel, And people of Judah are like, hey, what are you coming after us for? Philistine said, well, we want Samson. So he can do to him what he did to us because of what we did to him because of what he did to us. And at this point, as an entire nation starts descending on this tribe, you, we almost expect the tribe of Judah to reach out to God. Remember, this all started because of their idolatry, they're under condemnation, they're under judgment because of their idolatry, because of their sin, because of their disgrace. God gave them over to the oppression of the Philistines for 40 years. We almost wait for Judah to say, God, please save our land. God, please restore us. God, this is crazy, this is nuts. But look at their response, verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. 
They said to him, we have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me, you will not kill me. They said, no, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Let's say pause there for a moment. And I want to make sure that you see the response of the people of Judah. So they're under the oppression of the Philistines, a warlike people. They come up, threaten them. Instead of going to God, they go to Samson and say, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Now, if you've been going through judges with them, you know that term ruler. Man, that's an important term. Ruler, they have dominion over us. They have authority over us. They reign over us. They have undisputed power and authority over our lives. I mean, the apathy of Judah. I mean, they've just rolled over and they're just like, well, remember Gideon? Remember what Gideon said in Judges verse eight or chapter eight? When they said, Gideon, you rule over us. You have dominion over us. You reign over us. You have authority over us. He says, no, 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 no. I am not your ruler. Remember what he said? Look, here's the verse. Judges 8, 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, your son's son as well. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. Nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Man, God is your king. God goes before you. He's the one who promised you success and provision. He's the one who promised that you wouldn't have any of these crazy diseases if only you would be faithful. People of Judah said, ah, God's done. He's abandoned us. Philistines, they're our rulers now. They're in charge of us. They've just capitulated to remain in judgment. Got me to thinking this week as well. I wonder where we have chosen to wallow in judgment instead of humbling ourselves before God. Jesus says, ah, we're judged, we're done. God's handed us over to the Philistines. We're out, we're finished. God's left us. This is our life now. We're just going to be oppressed, or we need to just wallow in our judgment from here on out. I wonder where have we done that? There's people who just wallow in a divisive marriage. Well, it's what, it's what we have. I was going to exist in misery until Jesus comes. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. We allow our children to wallow in the judgment of their sin, the brokenness of their lives. As a culture, we just assume, well, California's gone. It's lost, it's over. Man, there is no way. There's too much corruption, there's too much brokenness, there's too much immorality. We're through. We're just going to, as Christians, we're just going to have to live here and survive and pray. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. I mean, where have we decided that we're just going to wallow in judgment 
Instead, so humble ourselves before the Lord. Allow him to do miraculous work in our homes, in our lives, and through our lives. God has not left us. God has not abandoned you. In fact, God's heart is very clear throughout Scripture. Look at what Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He said, come to me all who are weary, burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is comfortable, my burden is light. Man, quit wallowing in that. Come to me. Let me give you rest. Look what Paul said in Romans 5. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, when we were at our worst, Jesus came. Man, this is the heart of God. Why are you wallowing in judgment, in misery, in suffering when, you, when God wants you to come to him? Look at what, look at what uh, the apostle John says, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And perhaps it's time for you to stop wallowing in judgment. Perhaps it's time to acknowledge that God is still active and present in your life. And he's just waiting for you to repent, humble your heart before him. And if you're here today and you're like, Brian, I think that's what I need to do. In just a few moments, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. But I want to finish the days of Samson. Make sure you understand what happened. Let's look, go on. Verse 14 now of chapter 15. When he, meaning Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the, ro- the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, again, not what he's supposed to do. He reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson gloated with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Look what I did with the jawbone of a donkey. Verse 17, when he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand. He named the place Rameth Lehi. Then he became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and said, you've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall in the hands of the uncircumcised? God, how unfair. Look how faithful I am. I'm doing all this for you. This is what I get. Man, again, if I was God, there'd be a big lightning bolt coming down. <laughs> I've named it Samson Burnhigh, right? The place where Samson got burnt, verse 19. But God. I'm telling you, that'd be a great sermon series someday. But God. Every time we deserve something, but God. 
But God split the hollow place that was in Lehi so that water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned and he revived. Therefore, he named it En Hakore, which is in Lehi to this day. So he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. We finish chapter 15. We think it's over. That wasn't so bad. Samson and God end on good terms. God is merciful to Samson. But it's not over. See, chapter 15 was mostly about Samson's vengeance and Judah's apathy. Now it's the Philistines' turn. Chapter 15 was all about Samson and Judah. Now chapter 16 is about the Philistines. Look what happens. After verse 15, now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. Again, I don't think I need to say this, but just in case, Nazarites aren't supposed to do that either. Neither are you, just to be clear. <laughs> Samson went to Gaza, saw a harlot there, went into her. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night saying, let's wait until morning, then we'll kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. And he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. After this, it came about he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him, see where his, power, see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. They will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Most people believe now that there's five lords of the Philistines, five governors of the provinces, five leaders of the people, five men times 1,100 pieces of silver, 5,500 pieces of silver, which comes up to about 550 years of wages for a woman like Delilah. 550 years of wages. So she lays a trap that even the strength of Samson can't get out of. Verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. And this would give, be a good warning for you, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, you're going to read this. You're going to be overwhelmed by the stupidity of this man. But that's how sin is, isn't it? Man, you're outside of it looking in. It is as plain as day. Samson, you should run from this woman. But when you're in the midst of it, you get clouded. When you're in the midst of it, you just stumble. So Delilah, hey, if I did, I don't want to. But if I did want to afflict you, how would I do that? Verse 7, Samson plays with her, says, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and like any other man. And then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that have been dried, and she bound she bound him with them. Now she had, men, uh, she had men lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He snapped the cords as a string of, of toe snaps when it touches fire. His strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, surprise, you have deceived me and told me lies. 
right? Like, who is she to, to whine about that? Now, please tell me how you may be bound. He said to her, if they bind me tightly with new ropes, which had never been used, then I will become weak, be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes, bound him with them, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson, for the men were lying in wait in the inner room. But he snapped the ropes of his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. He said to her, If you, were, if you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web, fasten it with the pin, then I would become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. She fastened it with the pen and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled out the pen of the loom and the web. Verse 15, Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Back at you, Delilah. You have deceived me three times and have not told me about your great strength. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So, yeah, I'm just moving on. Verse 17, so he told her all that was in his heart. Said to her, a razor has never come on my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and now I become weak and be like any other man. We read that passage and we're overwhelmed by the complete absurd stupidity of Samson. I mean, it's almost like, well, you got what you got, Samson. Like, you're an idiot, first of all. And we're so focused on his stupidity that we completely miss his arrogance. At the very end, look at verse 17. Look how he describes himself. First, he says, I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Hey, I've been a faithful, dedicated servant of God my entire life. I have kept these vows for all of these years as an instrument of God. And we ought to be reading that and coughing. You snuck into the vineyard and ate grapes. You ate honey out of a dead lion. You likely drank alcohol at your wedding. You married someone you weren't supposed to. You visited harlots that you weren't supposed to. You were throwing tantrums and killing people that you weren't supposed to. What kind of servant of God are you? Number one, the false piety of this guy. But look at the arrogance, too. I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Look at this. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me. And I'll become weak, like all of you. And no mention of God. Sam says, this is my strength. This is my plan. This is my life. This is what I want to do. This is all about me. As reading this, I was reminded what another great man said. Look at what Solomon wrote. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall is how I always memorized it. Solomon experienced that fall. And what a great fall Samson had as well. Look at how it continues. Chapter 16, verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in her hands. In their hands, she made him sleep on her knees, called for a man, and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. And she began to afflict him, and the strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out, of, go out as at other times and shake myself free. He had no idea. He was expecting the power of God to come, just like it had every other time. But it didn't. One of the most frightening phrases within this whole story End of verse 20, but he did not know that the Lord had departed him. All right, Samson, you wanted your way. You wanted your life. You wanted your plan. Now you got it. Verse 21, then the Philistine seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze chains, he was a grinder in prison. He just walked to millstone around in a circle. We'll look at this. If we didn't know the story, we'd say, okay, that's how it ends. A man of great power, a man of great promise, a man of an amazing call. He brought it on himself. Just another example of an instrument of God falling short of what, called him to, what God called him to do. But you've got to remember something. See, the days of Samson, these four chapters, are not about Samson. They're about God. Samson is not the hero of this passage. God is. Samson is not the legend of this passage. God is. And if you truly want to understand about the days of Samson, you've got to go back to the very beginning of the story. Judges chapter 14, verse 4. Let me remind you what it says. Judges 14, verse 4 says this. However, his father and mother did not know that this was of the Lord. For he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. The very beginning of the story, remember we have this question. God is behind the scenes working all of this out for his plan. Throughout these four chapters, God's been silently at work. In chapter 14, verse 4, Samson's parents didn't know it. And the way the context goes, Samson didn't know it either. 
all the vengeance, all the destruction, all the sin, all the failure. You almost imagine that God just divorced himself from the whole thing, but he didn't. He's been using all of this for his plan of deliverance for his people. He has been in the midst of all of it. And we start going back now and like, remember when Samson snuck away into the vineyard to sneak some grapes when he wasn't supposed to? And the lion sprang on him? You remember what the Bible said happened? The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, empowered him, protected him. When he got himself into debt, threw a tantrum, who empowered him? God. When the Philistine people came to get their vengeance on Samson, a thousand men, who empowered Samson to protect himself? God. God has been there throughout this entire time. And just when we think the story's over, the reader's allowed to learn one final lesson. See, the days of Samson aren't about Samson. They're about God and his sovereignty. Look at verse 22. Just when you think all hope is lost. Verse 22, however... Story's not over. Samson's grinding that wheel over and over and over. However, the hair on his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. You begin to think, huh, wonder if there's hope. Wonder if God hasn't abandoned him. What if your life isn't over? What if your marriage isn't done? What if your kids aren't lost? What if this culture isn't doomed? What if God's still at work within the ashes of our lives? What if, and all of a sudden we keep reading, verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and rejoiced for they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Our fake God is better than the true God. When the people saw him, they praised their God and they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands. Even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. And so happened when they were in high spirits, they said, call out Samson so he may amuse us. They called for Samson from the prison. He entered them. He made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women and the lords of the Philistines were there. About 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me just this time, O oh God. That I may be once, I at once be avenged of the Philistines from my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars in which the house rested and braced himself against them. One with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all of his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. His brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up, buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. 
Thus he had judged Israel 20 years. Two things we see. Number one, remember God's plan from the very beginning of this. You're going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. That's what happened at the end of the story. But at great cost to Samson. Makes you wonder, wonder how the story would have been different had Samson lived different. But we get so caught up in the death of the Philistines, we miss something about what God did in Samson. Verse 28 again, for the first time, Samson has a humble conversation before the Lord. In all four chapters, this is the first time. Oh God, please remember me. And please strengthen me just this time. After all of his arrogance, after all of his pride, after all of his tantrums, after all of his failures, Samson, at the moment before his death, God, this has been about you. It's your power. It's your will. Samson humbles himself before God. After four chapters of all of that, God not only gets his way, but I believe God gets his man. The story of Judges keeps going on, starting in chapter 17. We'll get into that next week. But so often people have this question, wait, 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 what happened to Samson? Like, was Samson right with God or was he not? Like, did Samson end as a good guy or a bad guy? Because for four chapters, we couldn't tell. Where's Samson? What happened to him after he died? No one knows for sure, but I think Hebrews gives us the answer. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Hebrews says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mocking, flogging, and further chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts on mountains, sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. So apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And God has used all of those broken people Gideon, remember? Gideon the tyrant. Jephthah, the complete wackadoodle. Samson. David. People who were faithful but were tormented on this world. God's used all of it 
God used all of it. He's been in the midst of all of it from back then up through now. That's Hebrews' message. What do I think happened to Samson? I think he humbled himself before God. He's listed as a man who had faith. After all of his arrogance, disgrace, and failure, I believe Samson finally modeled something for us to follow. He humbled himself before God and finally accepted his role as an instrument of God. I guess the question I always have is, man, how different would the story have been had Samson done that earlier? It's a question we'll never know the answer to. But you and I don't have to repeat his mistakes. You and I don't have to wait until the end of our days, till the world is about to crush down on us because of our failure and our disgrace. We don't have to wait until our sins find us out. We don't have to wait until the failure of our lives crush our complete family. We don't have to wait. God's given us an opportunity. That's what the very next verse in Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 12, look at this. He says, therefore, because of how God does things in the past, because of what we've witnessed time after time, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Where do you need to humble yourself before the Lord today? I believe almost all of us have been given a powerful call and opportunity in life. We're in one of the most blessed nations throughout history. We've been given the most protection and freedom of any people before us. We're drowning ourselves in wealth. And we've been, we've been surrounded by the stories of God for generations. Perhaps it's time to humble yourself before the Lord. Acknowledge your call. Repent of your sin. And invite the power of God to be a reflection in you as never before. I see, think Samson finally modeled to us something that we can follow. Oh God, hear us now and do what you've promised. As Riley plays, I want to invite you to take a moment, just bow your head, close your eyes. I'm going to lead us into a time of prayer. And then the worship team will come up in just a moment. But after a prayer, I want to give you a moment 
to clear your heart before the Lord and restore your relationship with God as it should have been. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the book of Judges. We're grateful for this story of Samson. God, I'm grateful that you allow us to see the failures of biblical legends. God, not so that we can judge them or mock them, but God, so that we can see ourselves in the midst of them. So God, I pray you help us not repeat the failures of Samson. God, you have blessed us. God, you have called us. You have empowered us. And God, if we look over our lives, you have protected us. You have been there in the midst of our failures. You have restored us from our weaknesses. And God, even though there are times where we wonder if you've abandoned us, if we're honest, we know you've always been there. We just didn't know how to respond to it. So God, we respond now. God, will you forgive us of our failures? Forgive us of our need for control. God, we entrust that to you. God, forgive us of our covetous hearts. We seek after riches more than you. God, we confess that to you. God, we confess our need for fame, for people to like us. We're, cons- we're so consum- concerned about what other people think of us, we forget about what you desire for us. God, we confess our lust, our deceit. So God, I pray. Hear the prayers of my friends. Respond as you've promised that we might be restored to you once again.